0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3, and I know a lot of the youth have their Bibles today because they've made Bibles today. Um, They went and decorated their Bibles, so that's awesome. If you need a Bible and don't have a Bible, we have extra Bibles available, and I would love uh, to give you one on behalf of the church uh, to make sure everybody just has the Bible in their hands. Um, So if you don't have one, come talk to me and we'll get you one, and, and it can be your very own. Um, As you're turning to Exodus chapter 3, I just want to ask you a a simple, almost Bible trivia question. That is, who's the greatest shepherd in the Bible? Who's the the greatest shepherd in the Bible? God. Good. God is the greatest shepherd. Uh, Jesus, as we've already heard in the service in John chapter 10, said, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, A lot of us at a lot of times like to quote out of Psalm 23, where we say the Lord is my shepherd. So ding, ding, ding. Number one, the best shepherd ever in the Bible and anywhere else is God, Jesus. He is the great shepherd. Now, if we were to ask, who's the number two shepherd? A lot of us might go and say, well, obviously it was David. David was the shepherd boy who then took a sling and slay Goliath. Uh, He's the one who wrote Psalm 23, who, as a result of being a shepherd, had great insight is to God being the good shepherd and what it was like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and to care for and to comfort the sheep with a rod and a staff and to discipline and to have that strength that was there for the sheep. And so we might say David, but I actually heard a lot of the youth in the front coming up with another contender. And that was Moses. We don't often think of Moses as being a shepherd, but in the story that we've come to, Moses was absolutely a shepherd. Now, what has happened so far in our story is that the Israelites were in Egypt and they at first were a small family of about 70, but they grew and grew and grew over the centuries into an enormous nation. And because they were getting so big, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh said, that's it. Put them into slavery. And so here they are trudging through slavery. But as a result of even that persecution, they continue to grow into an even larger nation. And so the Pharaoh said, that's it. Kill all the baby boys. And they tried to kill all the baby boys. But that didn't stop things either. God was just persisting throughout the persecution. And there was one boy who was spared. He ended up becoming adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So he grows up in the royal household, learning all the great educational things of the Egyptians, growing up in a a well-to-do family. And there he was. His name was Moses. He grew up in an Egyptian house, but he was a Hebrew. He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Well, one day he goes out and he sees uh, one of his own Israelite brothers being oppressed by an Egyptian. So he kills the Egyptian, buries him in the sand, thinks nobody notices. The next day, he goes out and he sees two Israelites who are contending with one another. And he says to them, hey, why are you doing that? And they, uh, one of them says, what are you going to do? Are you going to do the same thing to me that you did to the Egyptian yesterday? And Moses suddenly realized that people knew that he was a murderer. And Pharaoh, the word got to him. So Moses ran away. Moses ran away. And that's where we found our story last week is Moses ran away and he he goes down into this wilderness area called um, the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, We'll see it today called the land of Midian. Um, If you look today on a map, we have Israel that's right here um, and then you have Egypt and Africa that's over here. And right in the middle, there's a little peninsula that looks like a shark's tooth. And that's the Sinai Peninsula. So he left Egypt and went down towards the bottom of that shark tooth, um, and that's where he was a shepherd. Last week we saw that he had befriended a family. He had actually um, defended the daughters of the family, and the man was was super uh, impressed by him and grateful um, that he takes him into his home and ends up uh, one of his daughters, Zipporah, marries Moses. And they end up having a son, and Moses goes to work helping his father-in-law with the sheep. So that's where we find our story today. We're now with uh, Moses, who's contending for the number two greatest shepherd in the Bible with David. Um, but that's our that's where we start in Exodus chapter three. So if you have your Bible, you can read along. If you don't, you're welcome to read on the screen behind me. But I would love for everybody to get a Bible in their hands at some point, And maybe even this week, you can read back over our passage. But let's look at Exodus chapter three, starting in verse one. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. So here he is. He's leading the sheep. And for whatever reason, that shepherds lead sheep to a certain place, maybe because there's food or water or protection. He leads them to the west side of this peninsula to this mountain called Oreb. At other times, it's called Sinai, Mount Sinai. And he leads them. It's the mountain of God. So there he is at this mountain, this mountain of God, Mount Oreb. And it says in verse two, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Um, That's a fascinating thing. So at this point, light bulbs have not been invented yet. If you want light at night, it's going to come from flame. And so Moses looks over in this bush, and there's a flame in the bush. And just like any of us, we go light a lot of fire just like the other night. Katie and I were having a little fire out back on the porch in our little chiminea thing. And um, we had some of the wood that Mr. Uh, Gary had provided for us, and, and we watched it consume. There's something magical about looking at fire consume something. It's just amazing. I don't even know how that chemically is working, but we're just drawn to that. And we expect that when something is on fire, it's being consumed. And so did Moses. That's what he knew. There wasn't a floodlight in that thing. He's looking at this bush wondering, I know what fire does when I look at it with my wife. It consumes, Moses thinks. Here he looks at this bush and it's not being consumed. What's, what's going on with this bush? So he's really intrigued by this bush. And he says, it says in verse 3, And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So God is revealing the fact that not only is this bush aflame and not being consumed, not only is the angel of God demonstrating his presence in that place, but because it's such a, a presence of God, this place is reserved as holy What we mean by holy is this is set apart. Wherever God is present, that is a place set apart for him because he is set apart. He is holy. There is nothing like God. There's nothing like his presence and his glory. And so he's telling Moses, you have stepped into a place that is unlike any other place. And it's not just because it's a mountain. It's because I'm on this mountain. You are approaching me. So take off your shoes, which seems like an odd thing. Go barefoot. But it's not so odd when you think about it in the construct of back in those days, when priests would enter temples, they would take off their shoes because they didn't want to track in things from common or unholy places into the holy place. You know, this morning when I walked in the door, this and and then even as I view around the doors, not a one of you has taken off your shoes. But because that's not what we do, we don't symbolize holiness, maybe in the same way, but I guarantee you If you come over to the Hudson house and you've had kids running around in the backyard where our dog also hangs out when they come into our house, we say, check your shoes or at least take them off. Right? Why? Because we don't want dirty. Possibly stinky. Things on the shoes being brought into a place that is reserved for cleanliness, where we want to provide and have a family intimate moment. We don't we want to leave that outside. You leave your farm boots outside. And so God is saying, Leave your farm sandals there. You've been with the sheep. Who knows what you've been into, but you are stepping into a holy place. I want you in a very physical, tangible way to recognize this is like unlike any other uh, place that you've ever been in any other moment that you've ever had because you're approaching me. I'm going to have a conversation with you. So leave the junk at the door is what he's saying. So take off your shoes, take off your sandals. You're approaching me. And then we have verse six. And this is an amazing little verse right here. It says, Uh, And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Uh, This is an amazing verse because later on in scripture, this verse is actually used to prove resurrection. When the Jews came and said, Jesus isn't true. Stop talking about that resurrection. We don't believe in that. The apostle stood up and said, of course you do. When Moses was on the mountain and God revealed himself as being holy, he said, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. He kept speaking in the present, even though those men had passed away. Why? Because. still have their life in God and he was still living. He was going to bring them resurrection. And so later on in scripture, that verse right there is used for the fact that God gives eternal life. I am, I am, I am. And he tells that to Moses in that space. I am. And Moses in this moment is like, God's too much. If I look at him, I'm going to die. It was a very, very, uh amazing moment for sure on this mountain we we'll, we'll continuing on in verse 7 it says then the lord said i have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in egypt and have heard their cry because of their task masters They'd be slave masters i know their sufferings and i've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to do good uh to excuse me to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God, in this moment with Moses, says, this isn't just about you and me. I need you to go back into the most powerful nation on earth where the most powerful man on earth is ruler, where. He has the most powerful military on the earth. And I want you to walk in as a shepherd who's been out in the wilderness for 40 years and go in and tell him uh, my people are leaving. That's what I want you to do, Moses. And Moses says, who am I? I'm a shepherd. I've, I've been dealing with sheep for 40 years. Back there, I'm known as a murderer. Who am I to go back to Pharaoh and say this? And God says, nope, this is the plan. And here's the sign that this is going to happen. You are going to come back to this mountain and you're not going to be alone. All the people are coming out with you because this mountain isn't the goal. And getting out of Egypt isn't the goal. I've told you I'm taking you to the land and I'm bringing you to myself. So we'll meet back here. We'll meet back here. This is going to happen, Moses. This is going to happen. Now, what God is illustrating isn't the fact that Moses is capable. But what he's saying to Moses is, I'm capable of doing this. I can take you from where you were and get you to where you need to be. I can take my people out of slavery and bring them to freedom. I will get this done. You trust me. You trust me. Now, I haven't experienced what the Israelites have gone through. But this, what is mentioned, them being in Egypt, is given in Scripture as an illustration of our own slavery. Whether we find ourselves in the slavery of sin and just entrenched in that which takes us away from Jesus and towards death. That we need to be delivered from that slavery or from whatever happens in life where we'd be taken and entangled in the the cares of this world. Other people that are that are oppressing us and the Lord would rescue us out of that and put us into his presence and care for us. So even though we might think, well, I'm not in Egypt, we do have to realize that we still need delivered. We still need God's help. So he's coming to Moses and saying, this is going to happen. I'm going to fulfill my promises. So he keeps on in verse 13. Moses wants to really make sure that this is the plan. Like, really? Like, this is going to happen? So Moses says to God in verse 13, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers sent me to you and they ask me, well, what's his name? What shall I say to him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses says, I'm going to go back to these people, tell them, hey, God told me so. What what name do you want to go by? So that they identify that you're really God, that this is really going to happen. Like, what's your name? Because up to this time, they've only known him as the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God says this, my name is, I am. Which in English just sounds like a boring name, but let me explain it to you. The word that he's using there just means, I exist. I am. A grammar teacher would just see that as, yeah, it's something that's being. And what God is saying is, I don't need anybody else's help to exist. I've always existed. I just am. Any other God that would have given their name, uh, you go back and they they might be, I am the God of fertility. Or they might say, I am the river God. I am the God of the uh, ocean. I don't know that they would qualify it with something, but God didn't qualify. He just said, I am. I am. I exist. I created all things and I can do whatever it is I need to do to fulfill my promises. Just go tell him I am. I don't need any other qualifiers. And in that he says, I am. You've probably heard the name in Hebrew, which is called Yahweh. That's the word Yahweh, Yahweh. And in your Bibles, here's a quick note. A lot of times if you look at your Bible and you see the word Lord and it's all uppercase, It's using that word right there, Yahweh. It's using I am. So sometime when you're reading through the the Old Testament, you see that uppercase uh, Lord. He's using that name. I want this name to be used forever. When you write your scripture, when you speak to your kids, you remind them, I am. I'm the one who saves. I'm the one who creates. I'm the one that'll help. Why? Because God is talking to a human shepherd who takes care of sheep. Now who's supposed to go get his people? And what God is saying is this. I am. I I am the shepherd who can go get this done. I am the shepherd. I quickly want to roll over to Jesus because this always has to point at Jesus, right? Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus has arrived. He's speaking to Jews who are still using the name Yahweh, still going by the Old Testament law, saying everything is from Moses. And so when Jesus arrives, there's like, who are you? What's your name? Well, Jesus name means the eternal one who saves. And then as he stands before the Jews in John chapter eight, they're arguing with him. And he talks about with them how if Abraham had been able uh, would see him, he'd be glad that their father Abraham would look at Jesus and he'd be like, yep, that's the one. And they say to him, wait a second, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you and Abraham have have basically met? And here's Jesus's reply. This is John chapter eight. I'm going to read out of verse 58. Actually, I'll go back to 57 just so we get that question in. John 8, 57 says, so the Jews said to Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was. And then what are the next two words? I am Jesus wasn't just saying I got in a time machine. The Jews recognized that when they asked, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have been with Abraham? Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. And he spoke the name of God and he attributed it to himself to say, I have always existed. I'm the one with the strength I made Abraham. I made you. And if you want saved, You'll be saved through me. Two chapters later, he goes to John chapter 10 and he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the one who gives eternal life. And my sheep, they know my voice. And I will give them life. And it says there in John chapter eight, when Jesus says, I am, we know that it's a claim of him to be God, that they knew what he was saying, because in the very next verse, it says they all searched around where they were to get rocks so they could stone Jesus and kill him. They already wanted to kill Jesus why he was claiming to be God. He was claiming to be the one who could save them out of slavery, the slavery of sin and the slavery of death. Back into Exodus, God has just told him his name. It says in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what you've been, uh, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites and a land flowing with milk and honey. So just so you know, God's not confused. He doesn't think there's rivers of, of milk running through the land. That was a term that basically said the land is going to be so good. You could put cows and stuff on it and get milk. It's going to be a good land for your livestock. And there's going to be natural resource there where you'll get honey. And the word that's used there can actually mean kind of the syrupy stuff that comes from figs. It's going to be there's going to be produce there. I'm taking you to a place where you will be provided for your livestock will dwell. I'm bringing you to a place that's lush is what he's saying. But ultimately, they knew that in that place, that's where God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the promise in that wasn't that they would just have stuff. It wasn't just that they would have a place to put a fence so they could put their cow there. Their opportunity in that place was that that's where God made a covenant relationship with his people. I'm going to be with you. We're going to be together. I'm going to display myself to you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to love you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. So that's what he's bringing him to. It's not about rivers of milk. It's about God himself. And so 18 goes on and says. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. That's Pharaoh and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord, our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go. Unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. And strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. And any woman who lives in her house. For silver and gold jewelry. And for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and, da- and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. He said, you're going to go back in there and you're going to tell the mightiest king on all the earth that God says, let my people go. And that king is not going to move a muscle. He says, I'm going to have to show him by a mighty hand. Now, that was usually reserved for Pharaoh that he had a mighty hand. But God said, I'm going to show him who's got the mighty hand. I will strike him and I will strike their land. And in fact, all the people of Israel are going to go to their neighbors and they're just going to ask, I want your silver. I want your gold. I want this, and they're going to give it. God had actually promised that to Abraham over 400 years earlier that that was going to happen. Pretty amazing. What happens? The people of Israel, this ends up happening later on. We'll find out that God does deliver them, that they go to their neighbors, they actually get that stuff, and they go out in the wilderness, and they're delivered from slavery, and they're in the care of God. And do you know what the first thing they did was? They took all that jewelry, and they melted it down into a golden calf idol. And they said, this cow. This cow brought us out of Egypt. Remember that the golden calf we will get there. Here, God is like, I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to care for you. I am just tell him I exist. I made everything and I love them so much. I am coming in for them and I'm going to smash the greatest nation on the earth and their king. And I will show who I am and I love you so much and I, I'm going to do everything to bring you to myself and then. He brought them to himself. And what they do, they said, we're going to turn away from you and we're going to worship the gold. With which we took out of Egypt. A idol that they could not trust, an idol that would not speak back, an idol that did not love them. And how often do we, when we say, Lord, save me from slavery, and he, he pulls us out of sin and he, he delivers us from circumstances. We're like, thanks a lot. And then we throw all of our attention to anything but God. We rely on other things and we get caught up in deception. God says, well, I thought I was delivering you so that we could be together. I was talking to a man recently was struggling with a decision and and really wanted god to to shepherd him through that moment and he was asleep at night when night. he was he was dreaming and the man said right out of the dream boom the lord woke him up with a question just on the verge of it being like that audible it was it was just straight it was god it was not in the dream anymore he's just wide awake right before god and god just asked a question Now I'm not going to reveal what the question was. But the man responded in the positive. Yeah. And the Lord said to him, you can trust me. And the man said to the Lord. I trust you, but I'm scared. Have you ever had that? Where, Where God is like, I am. He has come to you in the midst of a of a problem, of a circumstance, and he's just. Boom, he suddenly has that conversation. It's like a a holy moment where he says, take off your sandals and leave all the other junk and all the other influences. And I just want to have a conversation with you right now. Maybe it happened in your bed. Maybe it happened on your drive to work. Maybe it happened as you were getting ready for church. I don't know maybe when it happened for you, but suddenly it's like, I just want to have a talk with you. Where are you at? Do you trust me? And I have a feeling a lot of times we, like Moses and like this man, say, I trust you, but I'm scared. I look at all the wilderness and I see all the strong men and all the things all around and. I trust you, Lord, but I'm scared. This guy said it was it was really amazing how the Lord showed his love to him. You know how the Lord showed his love? He came back again, and said, you can trust me. You can trust me. And the Lord showed him all the times that he had been faithful. Remember the time when? And remember this other time when? And now we've got this moment. And I know you're scared. It doesn't seem like it could be accomplished, but you can trust me. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. You are not on your own. You have the God of the universe who, if he has come to you and he said, I am leading you on this path. You can trust me. Then you can take that to the bank. You can trust Jesus. The one that you called upon to say, save me from my sin. He has assured you he has forgiven you of your sin. And he doesn't want anyone or anything to get in the way. He loves you so much that he bought you with his blood and he wants to protect you. And he will shepherd you just the same way that he has asked people to shepherd you, me, me. When Paul tells the Ephesian elders how to shepherd the people. He says to them in Acts chapter 20. I love this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, caretakers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. God wants to care for you. And he says right there, I bought them with my blood. I want to guard them from all the falsehoods, all the things that might come in and try to distract them into thinking that they can't trust me, that I'm not the one who made them, that I'm not the one who bought them, that I'm not the one that is bringing them out of slavery and sin and death and into a land flowing with milk and honey. And by that, he does not mean just heaven with pearly gates and a golden street. God is not calling you to a place. God's desire is to call you to himself, and he's not waiting for eternity to do that. It starts now. Today, as you venture on into your other things and you go into different seasons of life and 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 some of those good and some of those difficult and and you don't know what tomorrow holds, you know who does? Yahweh, Yahweh does. And as other people discount him and they stand up and they say, it's not about Jesus. And he's off to the side. You know who stands up and says, no, you got that wrong. It's Jesus. He will get right in your face and he will say, hey, when you're distracted, you remember. Before Abraham was and before you were, I am. You can trust him. You can trust him. By being I am, he is saying, I have promised you. And I'm powerful enough. And I get it done. And so this morning, you you might have needed that call. You may have found yourself just being lazy. You may have found yourself being struggling just with circumstances going on in life. Maybe you've gotten distracted because we're coming into the holiday stretch and there's a lot of shopping to be done. I don't I don't know, but God might be calling you just like, hey, Take off those unholy things in your life and come close to me right now. Come and come and see how good I am. And I guarantee you, he is so good that sometimes it hurts. Sometimes, like Moses, it just feels like I'm so close. I don't even know if I can look in because it, I'm afraid almost of how good God is. You know, what? that's a good place to be because the scripture says this. Because of what Jesus has done for you by cleaning you of your sin. He says we can approach him with confidence. Having been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And this morning you might need to come near. But don't come near and just thinking. Well I can do this. You you can't go through this wilderness. You cannot go into those powerful places alone. When God calls you to go there. He wants to go with you. That's what we're going to see in the story. Of the people of Israel. That God's got to be with them. Or this whole thing is nothing. This morning as God calls you. He's calling you to himself. We're going to sing a song today where we ask, Lord, would you shepherd me? Would you shepherd me? Would you continue to bring me to yourself and allow me to trust you? He's so good. He's so good. Let's let's sing this together.